It's still there. What's still there? It says fr. What? Yeah, the sign is still there. The chair is still here. Have you not made a commitment? Have you not made a promise? Have you not engaged? Do you not love your new chair? Look, man, by God, this chair will go out on the curb when this chair is good and ready and not one moment before. Brad? Brad, is this a monitor situation? It's no. Are you no. sure? It's less. I, I, I will be blunt. It's less attachment to the old chair and more uncertainty about the new chair. Is the new chair not more comfortable? Is your ass not happy? Should we talk about butt memory? Do you remember when everybody was wearing Birkenstocks and they were really popular? And we would talk about how the how the how the soles would mold to your feet. Mm hmm. Yeah, same thing happens with your ass in a chair. Okay. You 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 are in a codependent relationship. Your <laughs> ass has a codependent relationship with your old chair. It's time to let it go, Brad. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Does it have does the old chair have adjustable arms? It does not. Can you can you camber them in or out depending on whether you're using a gamepad or a keyboard and mouse? Uh, I don't even know what cambering is, so I'm going to say no. It means going sideways. Okay. Sideways like tilting swinging in and out. Lateral uh, movement, I'm going to say no. Does it have an adjustable seat pan? Doesn't have adjustable anything, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was it was it making your body happy at the end of the day or sad Not at the end of the so day? Not so much. Not so much. I'm going to tell you what to do. Okay. You're going to op open the trunk of the car and dangle it out the back with the trunk bungeed shut. And you're going to drive up to the top of Folsom Street. <laughs> We've been through this, man. And you're going to huck it down the street and drive away <laughs> as fast as you can before it damages somebody else's car and you get caught. That's my probably cover your license plate, too. This is not a legal advice podcast. This large envelope has been taped to this chair with the, the letters F-R-E-E -E written on it behind me for like wait, eight days now. That's phase one. <laughs> phase one of the plan. F-R-E-E -E, taped on the chair. Phase two, you got to put it where there are people. Yes, I know. The foot traffic through your office is pretty thin these days, I'm guessing. Yeah, you're right. These guinea pigs, I don't think, are going to take this chair home. They, where would they put it? It's a little bit large for them. Honestly, to be completely real, this this steel case, I got a refurbished steel case leap. It's kind of a harsh taskmaster. It's kind of a lot to get used to. Look, a good chair demands a lot of you, Brad. It demands everything that you put back into it. I can't I can't slouch like I'm trying to adjust myself here. Like the lumbar support is ferocious on this thing. I don't you know. Gotta, it's an adjustment period. OK, you got to get your you might have to adjust the seat pan forward. You might have it too far back because you might you might trust me. I've been doing that about two dozen times a day trying to find the spot. OK. I think I might you, have it dialed in, but okay. It took me a bit to get the gesture adjusted right. Okay, like the arms I got right away, the headrest I got right away, the seat pan was a mystery. Okay, that's good to hear. That's what I need to hear because I've been teetering both literally and figuratively a little bit on this thing. But so there's a vid there was a video for my chair that was like, here's how far forward the seat pan needs to be, and you have to get it right or else your legs fall asleep when you're sitting in the chair. And I even kind of wiggle it back and forth a little bit throughout the day if I'm sitting a lot. I suspect what will happen here is what often happens in situations like this, that my return window will close. Yeah. And the decision will be made for me. My my guess is that that chair is going to be in your office for the next three to six months based on the monitor experience of 2019 or 2020, whatever. Those, those monitors are still sitting here. Are you kidding me? About three feet away from me. Oh, Brad. Okay. What if we want to make a t-shirt out of those monitors or something? <laughs> we could fucking buy the monitors for $8 on Craigslist. Somebody has them. But not these monitors. I feel like I should rent some studio time, get some like nice high quality, oh, like kind of shadow box photos taken just in case. Don't memorialize the monitors. Oh, my gentle Jeebus. Look, new plan. Okay. You're going to put the monitors on the chair. Okay. You're going to put free signs, post-it notes on both of the monitors, and you're going to put them all out together 
by this time next week. How about, okay, alternative plan. Okay. Strap the monitors to the chair. Okay, I'm back in. Take the whole thing down to Ocean Beach. Uh-huh. Push it out into the water. That's pollution. I'm not, a, that's littering. The thing you were describing, like when you put it out there with the free sign, there's a compact that somebody who wants the bullshit that you're throwing away is going to want it. When you throw it in the ocean, that is, that is throw, that's not the compact. What if, a, what if a bow and flaming arrows were involved? Then it's a Viking funeral. So I'm okay with that again. To Brad and Will made a tech pod. I'm Will. I'm Brad. What's up? Hey, Brad. Hi. You, before we recorded the show so that the weaking of the pigs would not disturb the podcast recording, I told you that we have pigs coming this summer, is my you understanding. Do. How many? Two. The, Two. the second grade pigs from my daughter's school are going to come live with us for, seems like an indeterminate period of time. Oh, <laughs> could that turn uh, into a semi-permanent situation? No, we don't have room for that. Okay. Um, and, and, but, but we have been told that they have a pen, which they can stay in or like we can take them out in the backyard and they can play in the backyard is what we've been told. Sure. We have a lot of prey birds here. I was going to say, maybe evaluate the predatory avian situation in your neighborhood before you let them roam uncovered. Well, I was thinking we might, I might, we have like a little sun tent, sunshade thing. So I might just put that up and let them hang out under that. And then they won't get sunburned too. There's nothing they love more than eating grass. I can tell you that. Oh, really? Well, okay. So I, eat grass. Well, you should also maybe figure out what kind of grass you have there. We have fescue. I sure. Okay. Maybe look that up. I'll consult the experts. Okay. Uh, but, but uh, I'm going to come to you for pig advice for the one to three week period while we have the pigs. Yes. Does, does guinea pig care fall under the tech umbrella? Can we just do uh, a look, can, guinea we'll pig do, cast? We'll just, I mean, maybe it's a patron episode. Okay. A pig, pig trend episode. How, what, what are we talking about this week, Brad? It's the last week of the month. Well, we should probably get to the emails. I was about to say I have via my girlfriend sort of started poking around in the world of guinea pig influencers. Ooh, I think we should just move on. Ooh, pig, pig fluencer. There are some big channels out there, but we you, should move I, on. Look, there are a lot of guinea pigs on TikTok. I'm going to go ahead and say I see oh, a I lot bet. of guinea pig TikToks. I bet. I bet they're they're pretty good. Um, what's our first email, uh, Brad, if people wanted to send us an email, where would they send it? Do you remember email time TechPod at content dot town? That is correct. It's TechPod at content dot town. So you were really doing ourselves a disservice because that is not the email address we log into every week. Look, <laughs> if we, it was a lot more expensive to set up a, a proper Gmail with the email address there than it is to just forward it to a free Gmail. So yes, here we are. Um, the, actual, the actual email address is quite a bit uglier than techbot.content.com. It's on the first two episodes of the show, I think, before I was oh like, boy. oh, wait, we can just set up an email forward for a couple of bucks a year. Oh, yeah. uh, but, you know. That's right. These things happen. Yes. What's the first email, Brad? All right. Yeah, here we are. Monthly email episode. Email number one. Wesley from San Diego. Hi, I hope Wes. You, I hope you know. I hope you have some insight into this question because I'm just flabbergasted. Often I notice that when I buy a different brand of hand soap, 
and proceed to refill one of my pump dispensers that has some of the old hand soap remaining at the bottom that the old hand soap mixes with the new hand soap and they somehow cancel each other out. In other words, it becomes a liquidy, less viscous, less soapy fluid that doesn't seem to clean my hands well. What the hell? Do you know why this might be happening? Thanks. Okay. There are two things here. Yes. I I realize as you're reading this question that this person could have a reusable hand pump dispenser for soap. And they could be just pouring the old soap in the new soap in on top of the old soap. That was my take. I thought my first thought was that they're just taking the canister, the plastic thing that the soap comes in and dumping the empty, almost empty old one in on top of the new one. Ooh. That, and I was like, that's madness. That those, is not yes. okay. Those reactions. Yes, those are the reactions of a lunatic. <laughs> yes. But but also, I don't think like I rinse out. Well, first off, we don't I like the foamy soap. Okay. Like the real runny stuff that has the that when you put pump, the special pump thing makes the foam come out. Yeah, it does the the, the machine does the lathering for you. You get the bubbles, you start with the bubbles. Why not? Right. Why would I not start with the bubbles if given the option? So with the with the bubble stuff, with the foamy self-foaming stuff, you're kind of tied to the dispenser it comes in. So we don't really have the only reusable dispenser we have is the one for like dish soap for washing dishes and stuff like that. Washing like stuff that doesn't go in the dishwasher. And that every single time I finish with it, regardless of whether we're putting the same soap in on top or not, it gets a rinse out. I jam the bottle brush down in there, clean out the soap. I don't know why, because it's yes. soap. It's already clean. And then I put it out to dry and I fill it back up when it's dry. I can't even imagine putting the same more soap in on top of the old soap, especially if it's different. Who buys different hand soap? What what is happening there? What do you know? What do you know about the molecular interactions of various soaps? No, I it doesn't matter. Just don't it's, do this. You know, Rinse it out. The scientist man once said, Don't cross the streams. Don't, don't mix cross the, the streams. Don't mix no. the soaps. Don't mix the soaps. Probably Why? they use probably they use different like this. I don't I don't I don't even if you're a chemist and you understand what's happening here, let us know. I'm curious, but also don't do this. It's icky. It, I don't, it is, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It, I just think it's gross. It's very strange. I did some Googling around to see try to find some other examples of this happening. And you'll find like you'll find like, oh, I mixed these two soaps together and one of them like balled up inside the other one. It turned into these weird strands like they they soaps seem to interact with each other in very strange ways. You know, probably it's one. Probably it's like a detergent soap thing because like detergents are one thing and soaps are another, and um, it could be that the, the detergents are usually not water based and soaps are. Sure. So, um, soap. You know, I, 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 I have no idea. Uh, also, try to use soap and not detergent if you can. Generally speaking, uh, soap is better for the environment because it goes away, and detergent does not. So, really, I didn't yeah. know there was a distinction there. Yeah, detergent is a synthetic product generally. I see. I think we might have talked about this on one of the COVID episodes, but there was some interesting um, literature out there at the beginning of the pandemic about why soap kills viruses at the molecular level. Yeah, it's because it breaks the lipid layer around the outside edge of the cell. Like it's like it's like literally the shape of the molecular chains. Like it's it's kind of a spike sort of shape that literally pierces the structure of the virus. It denatures the it it, it doesn't denature proteins. It separates the lipids and and it breaks the molecular bonds. Yeah, right. Like it's, it is like kind of a mechanical action, right? It's just at a molecular scale. That's, I, believe I don't remember if it's a mechanical believe, action or not, but yeah. I believe that was the explanation. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah. 
don't I feel like I feel like soap is like right there on the list behind glue in terms of things that are like sort of unknowable. Well, no, no, soap soap is very noble because the way the lipid layer on the cell works is that there's a fat and then there's something on the other side oh, that sure. I don't remember. Okay. Anyway, yeah, like, just just don't fucking mix soap, man. That's gross. Yeah. Yes. Sorry for soap shaming you, Wesley. I Be apologize. Sensible. Be sensible, man. Come on. Yeah, this is a we do we not live in a society? <laughs> Let's not get into it. <laughs> All right. Next email is from Dave. Uh, when reviewers talk about video games, uh, they will throw around phrases like it's locked to 30 frames per second or it dips down from 60 frames per second sometimes. Uh, that part makes sense, but how exactly are they seeing that? Is there some debug mode in PCs or consoles that spits out this info in real time? Are their eyes just that sharp that they can guess? Something I've always wondered but never heard explained. There right, are, I mean, there are like capture and sort of software pipelines that will just count frames for you, right? Like you can just, yeah. you absolutely can quantify that with, with the right hardware and software pipeline. If you're playing a PC game and have an NVIDIA card, you can press Alt R and it pops yes. up stats and you see the frame rate in the top corner of yes, your on, screen. Yes, yes, that's on, on the PC. It's there are infinite ways to do that in Bazillions. real time. There's like all from kinds of, you know, MSI, like, EVGA type add ons that you can use to track frame rate in real time. But also, I mean, for console where you're capturing footage and checking it after the fact, like you can. Con so you can capture footage and like count frames if you count if you capture at a higher frame rate than the than the thing is outputting. Um, I think that depending on the platform, debug and test consoles usually have some sort of frame rate, some perfmon component. Sure. Um, or they should. I, so I have also people can detect this. So yes, it's very much I think it's very much a case by case basis of how sensitive people are to this stuff to just see it by eye. The, there was one of the things working on VR stuff, especially in the early days when we didn't really know what made people sick and what didn't. We were trying to figure it all out. Like when I did when I started Foo, we did something like 500 demos of VR for the first time for people. And it became very clear that there is a spectrum of experience where like five one percent of those people got sick no matter what and five percent got sick if you did something that's bad like moving the camera when when the person's head didn't move stuff like that um in my experience frame rate sensitivity is the same like i my dirty secret as somebody who reviewed and tested video cards for a really long time is that i fucking can't see frame rate unless it is abysmal Really? So, yeah, no if, it's, if it's below, I mean, it used to be below 30. I'm a little more sensitive to it now. But like, as long as I'm above 60, I don't notice a difference. Like, I don't see a difference. I can t if I'm playing a game, I shoot better. Like playing PUBG, going to the higher speed monitor from the 60 hertz monitor, my my average damage per round went up 30 percent or something ridiculous. Um, but but I don't I, I can't see it. Uh, at Maximum PC, we had a, a house bet on this once because Greg Viederman, who was the editor in chief of PC Gamer at the time, uh, has always been always claimed to be very sensitive to frame rate. And we one of the other editors set up a double blind so that there were two PCs with more or less identical hardware and one was locked at 60 and one was locked at 30 and Greg could pick it every fucking time. And I never was able to see the difference. No kidding. Yeah. So. Uh, and that was on CRTs, so it's a little little different. But like, um, like it, I, I firmly believe that, as with most of humanity, there is probably a wide spectrum of what people are able to detect and what they are not. I have always wondered if there was just some fundamental cognitive variation between people that was behind that. I also am kind of shocked to hear that you were. I, th I thought you would be a very hardline frame rate guy, like sixty FPS or bust. 
I mean, look, I'm, I'm, it's funny because when we, when I got that 360 Hertz monitor last year, I, I literally set up some tests and locked it at 60 and I tracked my average damage per round in PUBG. You know, I played four hours of PUBG a night, five nights a week. It's a pretty flat number. Like I was constantly 150 and I went to 200, 210, 220 immediately on switching to the faster monitor. So there's something there even for people like me that are old and slow compared sure. to like your shrouds and your Choco tacos. But like, it's not, it is not something that I can perceive in, in, like in front of mind. Okay. Cause I am that guy. I hate you to can say tell the frame rate. I'm, I'm sorry to say not, not across the board. I mean, there are definitely diminishing returns, right? Like, yeah, like the difference between 30 and 60 is night and day to me. Like I can't not think about it when I see that side by side between like, say, Let's say like going between 60 and 90, though, is not especially noticeable. Like it's a little I can I, I can kind of tell the difference, but it's not like profound. But 60 to 120, 144, yeah. like literally doubling the, the refresh, like super obvious. Like even in Windows, I can't go back anymore. <laughs> even the animations of like moving Windows around and animating UI stuff at 144. Like I don't want to go back from that at this point. So it's funny because I see the judder. Like, like if there's frame judder, like if you're panning left to right or something like that, and there's chonk, 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 as you go, I can see that, but I don't see, like, if you're driving in a car, I'd never know the difference. Like, it, like if, if everything, if the game is working right and it's motion, it's smoothing between frames and all that stuff, I usually don't notice. Yeah. So, yeah. And, if, you know, as always, it, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, some, the, some games yeah. need it a lot more than others. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always... It's why I think it's why I'm bad at fighting games, frankly, is because I can't ever see the frames. I and I have bad vision, so it could be it could have something to do with that, too. Um, but yeah, um, and I think like uh, I want to say Digital Foundry has been out there showing off some of the pipeline they use for counting console frame rates. And I think they do have a solution that quantifies it very exactly. So, yeah, it's you can it's, probably go find some of that material they've put out if you want to know more. They do good science over yes, there. Yeah. I'm a big fan. OK, next email is from Daniel. Okay, they're Swedish in this email. I might let Ooh. you. I don't know if I'm brave enough to try it, but here we go. <laughs> I was listening to the episode about the Computer Chronicles a while back, and while reminiscing, something unrelated jogged loose in my memory. In Sweden in the mid-80s, there was a program called... Dator Ernest Varld. Varld? 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 Translates to World of Computers. Okay, you I should have said have, World of Computers. I know, I know we have a few Swedish listeners. I Sorry, know. Swedish. I'm, I, 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 look, we didn't do the Swedish chef thing, which is the offensive way to yes. fuck that up, I think. Yes, I try to be respectful about pronouncing other languages. Uh, in Sweden in the mid-80s, there was a program called World of Computers that straight up sent software and games over the radio waves. And this wasn't any, local, uh, any small local station either. This was on Program 1 on National Radio. I was 10 years old at the time and remember sitting up late, ready with the record button on my cassette player to catch the goodies for free. I guess copyright laws be damned uh, if they even existed for broadcasted software. Uh, this program ran between 85 and 86 and was aimed at the Commodore VIC-20, which I had, and the ABC-80, which we had in school, uh, which was a Swedish-made basic-based computer. Uh, I'm wondering if this was a widespread thing. Did you have this in the U.S.? Uh, I've never heard of uh, heard about it outside of Sweden, and I think uh, outside of that time period. Uh, in 1986, the Commodore 64 exploded in popularity. It seemed everybody had one, at least among my nerdy friends, and the BBS became more wildly available. 
So the need for that kind of station just went away. If nothing else, I think you might find this interesting as a curiosa. Okay, so this is fascinating. I thought when I when you when you said radio waves, I thought you were talking about like broadcasting pirated software over ham radio. I didn't realize that this was like over terrestrial radio like a san- and also a sanctioned thing. It sounds like this was on like national radio there. I mean, look, copyright laws were a little looser in the 80s. <laughs> it's true. What's a floppy um, disk? But like my but also making software was cheap enough then like soft. So we didn't have at least where I was in Northeast Tennessee, where like they didn't play Prince on the radio because it was too outra. Mm-hmm. We did not have any broadcasting computer programs on the radio that I was aware of. Um, I did have a tape player hooked up to my TI that played that I we used to like play pirate adventure and stuff like that, like games that were too big for the cartridges. Um, I can't like given what a pain in the ass that was to get working. I can't imagine what a pain in the ass it was to ingest audio that was recorded over the, over the air. Um, in like in terms of like if there was crackle or something uh, like yeah, that, that uh, fucked up was, the modem signal. I was gonna say like, do you think there just, there had to be a certain amount of like error tolerance built into this, right? Because you're I taking, taking so. an analog radio broadcast and trying to turn it into digital information, right? Yeah, it's like on, over over a medium that is incredibly subject to interference. Well, I mean, you can do error correction and stuff. You just have to have, probably have a ridiculous error correction in in whatever you're, you're doing, but like. That's it's really fascinating. My bet is that they that the people who made this program just paid people to write programs for them every week. Like like you would. I mean, if you think about it, like computer magazines back then, we talked about the Altair a few weeks ago, um, the Altair rather a few weeks ago. And like the computer magazine paid the electronics magazine paid somebody to develop that kit. But like I, I assume the same thing happened with software. You know, if you were if you were getting bite in the 80s, there were a bunch of basic there were versions of the same program written in basic for like the big computers of the time. And you would then take the back pages of those magazines and type those programs in, and you would have like a weird Pac-Man clone or whatever. Um, and, and I, I, I don't think, I don't think that what they're describing is that out of the realm. I'm curious how long it, like, I can't imagine it was broadcasting for like 10 minutes. My guess is that they ran it for like 45 seconds or a minute, three times. And then, like you played it and then there was a break and then you played it again. Then you took break and you played the same thing again. So you had three chances to get it right. That's why you got to be there. Tape deck at the ready. I wonder, like, it's hard enough to get people to clap when you can talk to each other and get them to clap in <laughs> sync. I wonder, you think they had like a series of beeps and you're supposed to press record on the third beep or something? That's I, I would almost expect recordings of this stuff to be floating around on like archive.org or something. I'm sure they are. Like, yeah, there, there have got, there've got to be examples out there. Like, Probably some fun experiments you could do if you could get your hands on those recordings with trying to kind of re-import that stuff over new media. Well, so I was going to say the other thing this led me this question led me to look up like sending data over shortwave and like there's a whole community that does that. Um, And there's even like publicly accessible shortwave radios that you can download data that you can use to download broadcast data if you aren't like a ham radio operator and don't have a license or an antenna or a radio or anything. So it's it's pretty neat. Um, people in the Discord were talking about software-controlled radios the other day. Yes. Which is a weird, fascinating thing that I didn't know existed and I want to know more about. Yes, that is on the list, actually, of things to look into. Yes. Um, yeah, I've, I've always heard about that phenomenon of, of getting software over the radio, but always in a European context. I, if they had it in the U.S., I never heard about it. I think the, the programs in the back of magazines that you typed in manually is the closest analog. Wasn't 
Wasn't I've there heard- a Nintendo thing for the NES in Japan oh, that, that you see. downloaded date games on? Was that part of the um, disk system or something? Or I am I thinking of something else? Might be thinking of something else. I mean, there are various weird examples of that stuff. Like there was the Sega channel, which downloaded That's- games over, over coax, over a cable connection. Wow. Um, the Famicom disk system obviously used three and a half inch floppies. I don't know that it had any kind of telecommunications were stuff. They, were they just normal? They were weird I floppies though, were, right? I think they were three and a half inch. I think they were three and a half inch, but I thought they were some screwball like Nintendo format. There is so much weird hardware from Japan in the 80s and 90s that was kind of a, a marriage of computing and video game consoles that we didn't get here. Yeah. Like we should we should look into that stuff at some point. That, that, like, is, that is a great episode, actually. You're absolutely right. Like, like just again, the fact that there was just a freaking floppy drive that you plugged into a Nintendo, any bit Nintendo. They were 112K floppy disks, so they were oh. smaller than the three okay. and a half inch. Okay. Those are 1.5 meg or 1.44 meg. Was it a custom form factor? I, I, I don't see a picture. Oh, yeah, it's a weird form factor. Okay. It's, it looks more like here. I'll, um, yeah, it's it's like uh, they had a they, they had a slide that went back and forth either way. Um, it looks more like a zip disk almost. OK, with the way it works. Weird. I think I, I might be conflating that with the super wild card. Have you heard of that? Which. No, I don't remember that one at all. Literally, literally was a pirate Super Nintendo piece of hardware that was just a floppy drive with a Super Nintendo cartridge connector on the bottom. <laughs> Really? Yes, dude. If you never see, oh, we have got to. Oh my god, we got to dig yeah, up we, some we, pictures. I, I sh- wanted one of those so bad back in the day. We should but, get somebody from the Video Game History Foundation to come on and for sure like, talk about weird shit that you don't talk about anymore. There's, there's so much wild bootleg hardware that enabled piracy and stuff like that back then. Like, I, knew, I knew people that had those things. I knew people that I I had hung out with some people for a while who had stacks of Super Nintendo games on floppy disks that they loaded into their dumb pirate. So I I had piece a friend. I had a friend who had a modded PS one, I think, or Saturn, maybe I can't remember. And he would just burn optical discs in his CD-ROM drive and, and play them. But like at the time you didn't save all that much money because the CD-ROM discs were yes. really expensive. Yeah. Yes. They're like five or 10. I mean, yeah. Okay. He saved a lot of money, but they were five or 10 bucks and like nobody had real internet. So it took forever to download anything. And like as often as not, you would download it and burn it. It wouldn't work. And then he would yeah. get pissed off and be like, you know, it, yeah. It wasn't worth the hassle. Yeah, that stuff obviously became rife in later years. Yeah, I mean, the Dreamcast, I think, is the classic example of how that went bad for yes. somebody in a famous way. I saw I, I I wish I could source this. I didn't save the link, but I saw a there was kind of a big game developer thread on Twitter this past week the, along the lines of like, tell me how long you've been in game development without saying how long you've been, you know, just kind of tell us, tell some old stories. And there was a programmer on there who was like, it's like, I came up with a novel way to stop our Dreamcast game from getting pirated for a whole week after it came out. And that was considered <laughs> like a victory to late in the Dreamcast cycle to actually get a week of sales before people busted it open. Well, it's, it's, it's funny. I don't, it's something that I don't, you don't hear about all that often, but like even modern games, they get decompiled and dec- like the the packages that you post in the store can get decompiled and 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 essentially recreate the Unreal or Unity packages, Unity Unity projects. Oh, interesting! In, in practically no time. Oh, like, wow! I did not know you could reverse engineer in that way. Yeah, for I don't know if it's still the case, but I know with Unity for a long time when we were working on one of the Fusho episodes, the developer just was like, 
I, I was like, hey, here's what we need to do this. He was like, I'm just going to give you the whole project. And I was like, Jesus Christ, you're going to give me the project for your whole game? And they were like, yeah, it doesn't matter because the <laughs> Russians will have it decrypted within three hours of us releasing the game. So, you know, have fun. Good luck. Enjoy. Sure. Don't don't post it on BitTorrent, please. Right. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I did not know about that. Um, did you look at that UE5 stuff that came out this week? A little bit. It's the been demo. a was busy week. It's neat. Yes. Like some the good, game development cool. circles I'm in are are like, this is going to be amazing when it's usable in like five point releases. Sure. <laughs> and and then add three more years for games to start coming out. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, just, just so people, people probably don't realize this, but like if you're working on a game using one of the big game engines like Unreal or Unity or, or even, I assume even like Game Maker and stuff like that, when the new version like Unity posts and Unreal post every version and subversion that they've ever made on their site because presumably there's somebody out there still using them. Because once you're on a project, it's a spectacularly bad idea to upgrade. Like upgrading a Unity project or an Unreal project is something you do with incredible carefulness and trepidation. Probably only if you really need to, right? Only if it is absolutely vital. And often it's easier to like, backport of if you have a fix that you need in a new version it's probably easier to backport the fix into your old version than it is to upgrade your entire project and risk fucking the whole thing up because it's like yeah yeah sabbat and bailing twine dabbling in the open source open source world as much as i have the last few years yeah. uh, especially as i've been like kind of toying with different linux distri- distros and stuff like that uh-huh. has made me realize exactly how rickety damn near every software based system in the world is <laughs> like, I, th- I think the amount of work that Microsoft has done to make old windows stuff work on new windows has sort of obscured the fact that like every one of these things is just a giant teetering Jenga tower. And if you touch one thing wrong, it's all going to fall apart. Like, like, well, you know, it seems like most Linux distros are like hard to even upgrade between major releases without things breaking and forcing a reinstall, you know? let alone yeah. going between distros like like you said like open source projects get released but then each one of them has to be like backported or packaged for each specific distro to make sure it works right like stuff doesn't just plug in you know like it it requires an incredible amount of care to keep everything actually functioning together um okay let's move on to the next email from uh, from a software over radio waves to hdmi over code hangers wait this what from, this is from alex in cleveland this, this email rules. I, I we should at least include some of the photos he sent along. Uh, I was Holy listening to crap. Yeah, Alex in Cleveland. I was listening to episode eighty six where you got on the subject of video cables over the years, uh, and when Vinny mentioned that you should just toss a broken HDMI cable, I knew I had to send this in. A few years ago, in the wake of Best Buy representatives trying to push one hundred dollar HDMI cables on unsuspecting people, a friend and I decided to put. Uh, the old adage, it's just, it's all just wires to the test. Here is a link to, uh, a Google, Google photo album that documents us splitting an HDMI cable, soldering each wire to contact points, and then running HDMI over a set of code hangers suspended between those contacts. Please excuse the terrible cell phone pictures and video. This was quite a few years ago. This picture is unbelievable. It's, it's ridiculous. Did it uh, work? He doesn't he doesn't spell that out in this email, but I believe it did. I mean, there are pictures in here of a monitor with a perfectly legible signal on it. So I have to infer that it did. I love this so much. Oh, actually, it's a video. They've got. I'm going to play the video. Okay, people can't hear this, but I'm sure. 
I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what song is playing in the background of this video. <laughs> oh yeah, it worked. He's yes. showing. Well, hold on. They cheated though. They're using a VGA adapter on the monitor, so it's an analog signal. It's not well, a digital signal. Well, it's still getting there though. It has to come in cleanly into the HDMI to be converted, Look, right? This is a signal of lies. What? Yeah, I, I think this counts. This is an analog signal. I think this counts. Uh, it's still very cool. It's still absolute <laughs> insanity. Yes, I give them credit for even undertaking such a yeah that's that's bonkers i in a million years i wouldn't have guessed that, that would work that's pretty great that's really cool nice job alex yes uh and don't, friends uh i don't uh, a lot of code hangers have a coating on them that makes them non-conductive don't you have on to the strip, outside, yeah. strip that stuff off well i mean they strip the end off and then right, the, it's, just it's the good because yes. there's like 20 wires in there and they need those to not touch or bad things yes this picture this picture is ridiculous it's great <laughs> This should be the show art this week. Yes. This is incredible. If that's sure. okay with Alex, we'll have yes, to ask for sure. Um, we made a box for it that seals. It's very good. It's the biggest cable I've ever seen. Yeah, it's good. You'll love that. All right. Next email is from Jira. Uh, question. It seems like there's no upper bound for how much money one could spend on a gaming PC and peripherals. So why are even high end headphones still only doing emulated virtual surround sound? Why can't I pay a ridiculously, uh, why can't I pay for a ridiculously large set of cans that would actually have seven or more physical drivers in them to provide true positional audio? Mm. It's interesting you ask this. In the early days of Tested, way back in 2010 or 2011, we actually had a couple of people send headphones in that do this. Uh, most headphones use use Dolby, uh, uh, like a Dolby algorithm to to basically mimic using HRTFs and math and all this other stuff, positional audio inside the headphones. Okay. These you, you people just, actually, hmm? sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. I wanted to clarify, like, is that, is that at least in the same family as the stuff the PS5 is doing? I think they, they mentioned HRTFs there too. I believe the PS5 is using the same Dolby. There's a, okay. there's a, there's literally a Dolby technology that is like, I can't remember what it's called because they have 50 million and the names are all very similar. Okay. But the, the point is like this kind of acoustic, uh, technology has been around for some time or since, I mean, the first the first place I remember seeing it was in like 1997 or 98 with the Ariel um, monster sound. Oh, God, I remember Ariel. Yeah. So they used it back then. They used DSPs. And then later they had a dedicated accelerator that uh, would turn positional audio input from like direct sound 3D or direct direct sound 3D, I think was that. And they would position the sources in a 3D field that was generated using uh, HRTF stands for head related transfer functions, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's a couple other ways to do positional sound. You can do binaural sound, which is where you, you that usually you do with recordings. So you'll like physically put microphones inside some mimicked ears. So you make you make like 3D models of ears and you put the microphones inside the ear canals and then because of that, the way that works, it actually records the sound in this in the same way it would be if it was hitting your eardrums. And then they just blast that into your ear holes and, and you get really good positional sound. People use binaural stuff for 360 video for VR a lot. Um, but the the HRTF stuff is pretty effective. Like if you're thinking about like if you have a game like PUBG uses this if that that does positional audio. Um, and you can hear above or below. You're probably using HRTFs. That's that's the way people generate that. And you can do it in real time on modern computers for a relatively low performance overhead. Um, the 7.1 headphones or 5.1 headphones that I tested didn't 
I mean, they sounded okay. They were unwieldy for a lot of reasons, most of which had to do with putting four speakers in each headphone, each ear of the headphone, and then weighing a fuckload. Yeah, I was going to say, they have to be pretty bulky at that point. They were really uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, you, like you couldn't move your head very well and it wasn't, it wasn't a great experience. And, and it turns out the, the thing about humans is that like in terms of senses that we're good at detecting differences on our ears are probably tertiary or quaternary behind vision and smell. Like if you think about smell, the, the smelling parts of our brain are actually exposed to the outside world. And like when you smell something, it, it literally is hooked onto like it's touching your brain and then your brain is getting a signal. Um, hearing we're not like we're good at the language parts of hearing and then the rest of it's uh, and, and the not getting eaten by big animals parts of hearing. And then the rest of it, we're pretty thin on. Like the, so, the fine, the fine detail gets lost. It's just the, it's more the loud noise type stuff. Yeah. Loud noise. To. Like language, language, it turns out is the important thing I think right. for, for humans. Right. Um, so how many, how many drivers are in your average set of headphones? Like two, on each, one, in, each can. one on each side. Well, that's what I like per ear. It's just one. Yeah. One per year. Okay. Cause I would that's think like packing more in would also mean each one had to be smaller. Right. So you're. Well, and, and so like you're not, because because the range at which vo- the volumes at which you work for headphones and the the like you don't need to have like woofers and tweeters and stuff like that because y- you can't you can't put a 12 inch woofer on your headphones without having some ergonomic problems maybe you can't look that's why you need the butt kicker man you just bolt that thing on the bottom of your chair and it vol- that's vol- right vol- that's you. right don't hear your game feel, feel it. it feel in it your butt. in your butt i kind of want a butt kicker i'm not gonna lie it sounds like Ooh. it'd be fun Wait, is that a new thing? Is that an actual product? Oh, they've been around for years. They they oh. were so they make them. Uh, they started out making them for like the sim folks. Sure. So it, it essentially gives you like the D box rumble feel on your office chair. Um, and they started making it, I think, for racing games was where, uh, yes. they, where they kind of kicked off. Ah, uh, yes. Here we are. The butt kicker gamer two. Looks like about 160, 180 bucks. Yep. You just hook it on the post on the bottom of your chair. <laughs> I might, I might trade up for the butt kicker advance. Look, I don't, I don't, I'm, so I have some friends who have a butt kicker and I don't think you can over the, he is enthusiastic about the value of the butt kicker. Okay. I can yeah. see it. I can see, just kind of whole body force feedback. Right. But yeah, he's also real into like eye racing and does like five hours a weekend in the, in the race car. So you yes, know, yes. Your, your mileage may vary. Yes. Uh, if nothing else, I'm glad you have demystified here for folks why Mark Cerny was asking for people to send pictures of their ears last oh, year. Is that what the, he asked for people to send pictures of their oh, ears? Did you miss that? No, did, they, did, did they have to sign their rights away or anything? I don't know. It was at the very like chill kind of sedate uh, tech talk he gave on the PS5 for mm. kind of virtual GDC early in the pandemic last year, where toward the end he was talking about their 3D audio and soliciting pictures of ears. Ears are, everybody's ears are different. It became like kind of a joke on the internet, you know, how things like that do. I mean, so at, at least people's ears didn't turn out to be pancake bunnies or, 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 uh, what's the bad one? I can't remember. Milkshake ducks. Oh boy. Yes. Yeah. No, no racist ears. Please. No racist ears, please. Um, uh, here's just a little recommendation from Reed in Seattle. Uh, you asked for books about uh, Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins, rest in peace, in episode 85. I recommend the audiobook version of Carrying the Fire and Astronaut's Journey, which is by Michael Collins. 
I haven't oh. read the I haven't read the non-audio version, so I can't compare them, but it's a funny and informative look at his life. There are lots of self-deprecating astronaut details. He seemed very humble and likable. I, I think there, there were a bunch of people on the Discord that also recommended that book. I got a bunch of Twitter messages from people saying, yo, you should read Michael Collins' book. It's yeah. good. Like I've, I've seen people saying like it's the best book by a, a, a moon astronaut. It is, it is, it is, it, it was recommended in uh, the top of those lists. Yes. Yes. Carrying the fire is the title again. Yeah. Um, I, I added it to my Kindle queue. So when I finished my current, I just finished Andy Weir's book, the new one the Martian, that he wrote the Martian. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the new book is about called Hail Mary. It's about, uh, uh, interstellar travel and it's, okay. it's quite good. Okay. Is it similarly cheeky? It is, it is, I would say it is, I empathize with the character in a way that I did with Mark Watney in The Martian Okay. to the point that I remember, like, usually I am bad about remembering characters' names if I don't really feel a connection with them. So, yeah, it's the same, it's, it is very much to the Martian form of, hey, there's some problems to solve. Let's, let's, let's work the problem NASA style and uh it's a little more fantastical than the martian which is obviously based on all of the like a lot of the the current well current at the time best thoughts for how we would set up a mars mars mission okay um but yeah it's good it's good i I enjoyed it i might check that out i i really enjoyed the engineering like problem tackling aspect of the martian some of the little little bit of the internet humor stuff was maybe a bit thick for me the pirate ninja stuff it's a little it's less of that because it okay. takes, pl- takes place in a little bit further in the future. So like right. that stuff wouldn't make as much sense. OK, that, that is that's that's good to hear then. I, but the problems are a little more fantastical because obviously interstellar travel is significantly more challenging than, you know, what we do here. I might have to check that out. Um, speaking of books. Kyle yes. from Knoxville, Tennessee. Hey, shout out to Knoxville. Yeah. Oh, how do you feel about Knoxville? It's fine. Yeah, I lived there for 10 years. I liked it. Okay. Okay. Wait, is that which part of what? What's your actual hometown? Bristol. Bristol. Okay. Yeah. There's not some rivalry there. No, Knoxville's a real city. Bristol's a 50,000 person town. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's not some Springfield, Shelbyville. No, like if you want to, if you want Bristol beef, then fuck Johnson City. We'll burn that place <laughs> to the ground. Okay. <laughs> no, really, Johnson City's okay. But Kingsport, those people suck. Never, never a bad idea to get some, some. Intertown beef going yeah, let's on your get podcast. Some Tennessee beef on the podcast. I'm going to get a letter from the Chamber of Commerce. Oh boy, dear Mr. Smith, you're no longer welcome in Johnson City or Kingsport. <laughs> get fucked. Can the other two tri cities. Kiss those tax incentives goodbye. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Kyle from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, I love the Hitchhiker's Guide book club you guys did a while back. I'm currently reading through Neuromancer for the first time, and it occurs to me it would be a, a fascinating book to hear you discuss on a book club podcast. William Gibson's view of what the future would be in 1984 is impressively accurate in some respects and hilariously inaccurate in others. Plus, it's apparent to me now how big an influence it had on other science fiction media that's come out since. So, I just reread it a few you. months ago. Did you wait for yeah. the first time or reread it? No, for I hadn't read it in 20 years though. Probably this, this, it may surprise you or may not to hear that just like the Hitchhiker's Guide, I have a copy of Neuromancer in the. The, the nightstand drawer next to the bed <laughs> that's been there for years, which I have never read. So on, on the list, never gotten around to it. Have not had not, had not read Hitchhiker's Guide or Neuromancer as a youth. Having come back to this for the first time, like Neuromancer was one of those things that I read in the mid nineties, maybe early nineties. 
and like as I was leaving college probably and somebody had been like, hey, you like computers, you should read this. It's cool. And I was like, this is cool. It is a very cool book. Like it has to put it in the parlance of your former workplace. It has a lot of style. Okay. But it is not like the back half of that book gets inscrutable as shit in ways that is very real to people who are into cyberpunk fiction from the mid 80s. Um, I would say probably Snow Crash is a, I haven't read Snow Crash in a good 10 years, but I remember liking Snow Crash a lot more than Neuromancer. So, so that's what I ended up with. Like I was a, a, just a tad bit younger than you. Yeah. And I, th- I think I was just a little too young for Neuromancer, but Snow Crash was exactly timed perfectly for me. Yeah. I read that in college around 2000, 2001. So and I love Neil Stevenson and I, I've read all of, all of his books. Um, all of them? Most of them multiple times. That is, wow, man, that is a serious time commitment. I read fast. I'm, you know, professional, professional Brad. Um, the, the thing about Neil Stevenson is he's usually a two thirds, one third guy. So one third of the book is going to be a little bit of a mess and two thirds yeah. are going to be awesome. So Snow Crash is, I think, the only one of the books that he wrote that is maybe 80. It's like 90, 10, like 90% awesome, 10% real weird. Um, so I, I like Snow Crash. I think actually Diamond Age is incredible. I think maybe Diamond Age is my favorite. Neil's Diamond Age or an Anthem are my favorite Neil Stevenson books. Um, uh, Snow Crash remains incredible. And I, I, I would reread Snow Crash. I, re- I would reread Neuromancer again, frankly. It's worth it's worth engaging with. And it has maybe the best opening line of all time in a novel. Holds up pretty well, you would say. It, it's it's with it, some exceptions, that, I'm sure. The thing that the thing that Kyle said about it being hilarious in some aspects, like it's ridiculous to to think about a living in the 2030s with no phones. <laughs> sure. Right. Like, yes. But other than that, yeah, he does an okay job. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, I was, I was, I was explaining my love of Calvin and Hobbes to my girlfriend last night. Yeah. Uh, which, which she did not read in the, at the time. And like, I pulled some strips up and there are, you know, all these rotary phones. There are references to like Sears and Kmart. Yep. Which I know Sears is gone. Kmart also no longer exists, right? Sears bought Kmart and then Sears went out of business. <laughs> oh, well, great. Yes. Perfect. Uh, ten it's, out of it's, ten. it's really weird to look back on some of that formative stuff you grew up with and see how anachronistic some parts of it are that like make it maybe kind of like a thing out of time at some point, you know? I like, I remember going to Kmart and you checked out at one of the subsections, like it was a department, like it was a Macy's or, or Parks Belk style department store. And when they added all the registers at the exit, like a cat, like a grocery store, it was controversial. People were upset. Like my mom did not like that. She liked huh. going to talk to the to the person in like the women's women's clothing department to check out. Yeah, you want to feel pampered. Yeah, you want the, but, it, but like it wasn't ever a nice store. Yeah, you know, it's still the blue light special. I was, I, was, I was just going to say there was a blue light special reference in that strip, and what does that even mean to anybody in twenty twenty one? Yeah, right. Like, right. And I'm sure Neuromancer is full of stuff like that, right? Um, maybe not like as much. So the thing about the thing that's cool about William Gibson is that his grasp on the like what the capital C culture is doing at any given moment, especially in like the weird edge spaces where like experimental artists live and stuff like that. He's always really on on point on that. Like if you want to read a William Gibson book that's incredible and has aged unbelievably well pattern recognition is the one to pick up um like the the protagonist's job is to be a cool hunter which is unfortunate but is entirely 
in the in the influencer driven world that we live in today is is prescient and is fascinating but like yeah that 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 i think that book has aged like it 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 it's understanding of art and honestly neuromancer's understanding of of what art looks like in a post you know post uh 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 uh, uh post uh, postmodern world is really interesting. And, and that's where I think William Gibson is the most interesting to me is, is like as a, as a filter through which his understanding of art and culture and the intersection of that and commerce live. Okay. Like I, 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 I like, I, I love William Gibson books. I don't always enjoy reading them. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I would be willing to loop around to Neuromancer down the line for sure. I, I feel like that's, that is a gap I should fill in. Maybe we should put a uh, why don't we let the people decide what we should hit next? And you and I can pick a like a list of like maybe four or five potential books that we would like to read and uh, and discuss as a group. And then we'll make it uh, let the people vote okay. on the sure. on the discord and we'll either make it a patron episode or or mainline episode. I don't whichever makes more sense. Not to not to turn this just into the the books for nerds hour, but real quick, one last question: Where does uh where does Cryptonomicon rank on the Stevenson scale? Because that was the only other one of his I read. I think like straight after Snow Crash, and I remember like completely devouring it. Yeah, so Cryptonomicon is a slow start. I like I tried to read Cryptonomicon probably three times before I actually made it through the first chapter or two. Um, I like Cryptonomicon a lot. I haven't I reread it in the early two thousands, most recently probably. Um, I, it's like, it's top five. Okay. It's probably the best of his novels, like from a construction and like, well, how, how it's written standpoint. Right. Like when you mentioned the kind of one third mess rule, it made me think back. Like, I, I remember that thing being quite a breezy, like a, a page turner, you know? Well, so, but the first few chapters are slow and there's a lot of math and it, yes, it's like, true. it immediately is like, if you don't, if you don't want to learn about the math of, of world war two era cryptography, that, that's what then, it was. It was like all the enigma machine stuff is what really got me about that thing. Cause I, I that Bletchley Park was Bletchley Park in that novel. I can't remember if they get I, that close to they, that stuff. Well, Alan Turing's a character, right? I thought so. And then they make up a fictional character that's his friend right. who becomes the one of the protagonists for the okay. book. But th- that ju- that book jumps through timelines, and right? It's it's a little bit confusing until you get it. And it, it is definitely a book that I finished and then immediately went back and read the first two chapters, so I understood what was happening in the first two <laughs> sure. chapters. Sure. Um, I, if like an anthem is definitely the same way. The first third of an anthem is a is a. Until you understand, until you can piece together what's going on, it is a fucking death march. It is really hard. There's terrifying math. There's like weird monastic orders, and you're like, "What is even going on here?" And then that when that book opens up for you, it's magical. It's really good. Uh, and the audiobook version of that is great because there's Gregorian chants, like they 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 make the music <laughs> that's described in the books, and it's exceptional. Oh, that sounds like like a radio play almost. So so. Yeah, it kind of it, it kind of is it, like, like there's a thing that Stevenson does really well, though, where he explains how a machine, some sort of machine works in in like a really intimate detail. Like he does it with the organ that water that, that the protagonist in Cryptonomicon uh, figures out to to do uh, cryptography, like to use as a basic computer. Um, he it's a thing that actually Tom Clancy, of all people, did incredibly well. There's this I think we've even talked about it in the pod before, but like there's a scene, there's a chapter in Hunt for Red October where a nuclear submarines reactor is going critical. And he does. He tells the story of that reactor going critical from like the atom oh, wow. the atomic 
view and like how the water is heating and then the water heats up and turns it flashes into steam and the boiler is not designed to work with steam is designed to work with water. So all of a sudden, like the heat transfer stops working and the neuron load goes way up. And as a result, the reactor goes super critical and then the rods start to melt. And then next thing you know, the rods are melting through the bottom of the titanium hull of this this submarine. And it's like it's maybe four pages. Huh. But it gives you it 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 in order to write that you have to understand how that reaction works at such a high level yeah and it's accessible to anybody and it's incredible i'll, I'll um i i've referenced it many times over the years but it's one of my favorite pieces of technical writing and it's something that stevenson does really well as well yeah n- nuclear physics in narrative form is not something i expected to be talking about today but here we hey, are. look that's the tech pod that's that's this podcast uh okay a couple more emails real quick here uh this one is from tomo you were talking about old tools recently and their durability and longevity. The hot rod shop I work at as a machinist and welder has two World War II era lathes that we still use on a regular basis. <laughs> they are incredibly overbuilt, much better quality than later production uh, machine tools. So this is this is the thing that the old people in machine shops always will stand around and talk about how the old stuff was better. <laughs> like, I, I don't I'm, say I'm curious. For the people who are machinists in our community, I'm curious if if the feeling is this is like a the first one you learn to use is always the best one type situation. Like I know working with Adam at Untested, like he definitely liked his old like he liked to buy that stuff old. He wouldn't have bought a new one. He would find a new one, an old one on Craigslist and and fix it. There's a there's a neat idea with lathes that they're the basics that like a lathe is with the lathe, you can build every other machine is like once you can make gears and shafts, then you can and, and plates, then you can, you know, a lathe spins, spins metal and you cut pieces off of it as it's spinning. It is a mill carves right. it away. Like with a lathe, you can build a mill and with a lathe and a mill, you can build anything. Right. It's like this is just full on survival game, like tech tree stuff at that point. Right. Yeah. Straight, straight up. Like if you're if the tech tree of modern civilizations, you start with a shitty lathe. You use that lathe to make a slightly more accurate lathe and you make a more <laughs> accurate lathe with that one. And then you make a mill and then use the mill and the lathe to make a more accurate lathe. And pretty soon you make like, you know, hundred micro, uh, hundred thou or, or five thou uh, parts. Right. Um, I, I, f- all the places it's unclear to me if this is a status thing where if you have money and you're building a shop, like if you go, if you go to Carl Bass's, one of Carl Bass's shops, he has a, uh, he has a CNC lathe that's brand new and awesome. But then he also has a 50 year old m- uh, manual lathe that he's put digital shit on to make the me- measurements digital, but you're still cranking the hand turns that, that are 60 years old. And I don't know if that's a status thing or if they're actually better. So I'm curious mm. what people think. Yeah, for sure. Also, I guess if your if your lathe is not completely non functional, you can repair the lathe with the lathe, right? My like understanding as as, is that you can use the lathe to fix the lathe. Yeah, as long as often. as long as whatever's broken about it is not going to stop it from functioning, you get to it can be a self healing device. Like, like you may have to make, yeah. Because well, the neat thing about lathes is you you can set them to turn at all sorts of different speeds and different torques and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah, quite a versatile machine. You can make a new chuck with your old ch- busted chuck if you're careful. That's right. And smart. Okay. Last email. Save the most dire one for last. Oh, uh, great. I love that. on a high note. <laughs> this is from Jerry. Uh, this is in light of us talking about Gateway, or as I like to think of it, Gateway 2000. 
Yeah, the Cowbox computer people. I, I, I always thought I was always really bummed when they dropped the 2000 from the name. I thought it was way less interesting. I was bummed when they stopped shipping the computers in cow boxes. Yeah. And honestly, I was kind of bummed when I realized that the computers didn't look like cows when you took them out of the box. Mm. I think that branding is kind of a less is more situation. Personally, they were selling white computers before anybody like computers were mostly beige and gateways yeah. were always like a kind of ivory off white. Yeah, we talked about it before, but I always thought their case design was like kind of ahead of the curve. It was really like good. Was yeah. For for the era, it was pretty attractive. They would still cut the hell out of you. We had a gateway contract when I was at UT. Oh, can I can I digress for just a second? Yes. I don't know why this this just popped into my head the other day, and I don't know why this has not occurred to me over the last like 10 years since they stopped putting case speakers in PC cases <laughs> that you can just go out and buy one. Yeah. But then I went on Amazon. Yeah. You get like 10 case speakers for like seven bucks. Oh, yeah, think, that's probably a lot. I think and then, what gonna, do you just dangle it in the case someplace. Yeah, most of most of them are, are very small. Like, so a lot of them look like they only have like maybe one, two inch long wires. So you would literally just be dangling it off the motherboard at that point instead of mounting it. But like, I don't know about you, but I just missed the beep. Are they the Paizo ones that make the yes, grading from, beep or are they the ones with the speaker? So that's the thing. I think they're all that the, the former kind. OK, the the small, the little button little round yeah, black it's button like a, looking it's design. Like, it's like a cylinder. It doesn't look like a traditional yes. speaker. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, you will see a lot of user reviews. They don't sound as good as the old school ones. I mean, my uh, first computer didn't have a sound card. That was the, where the sound came from. Oh yeah, for sure. That's like, you know, you're playing your, your four color CGA, you know, your King's quest one or whatever. You're getting some mm. God awful. Yeah. Wolfenstein. Is that, is, that, is that PWM? Is that what's coming out of those speakers? I don't have any idea. Pulse that's, width that's, modulation, I think, yeah. is how they are making sound out of those things. Well, anyway. out of the Paizos, yeah, but out, the, out of the flat speakers, the old school flat speakers, you could make a slightly buzzier sound. Okay. But like the Wolfenstein sounds to me are forever the sounds that came out of the PC speaker, not really? out of the sound card. No kidding. Yeah. I don't think I, I ever played Wolfenstein without. Well, I didn't play Wolfenstein at all. It was too, I was not quite old enough. We didn't have a computer, but by the yeah. time. I got my hands on computers. Sound blasters were fairly ubiquitous. Look, if you play violent video games as a young child, Brad, you, it'll mess you up. It'll, yes. it'll haunt you for the rest of your life. That's, I spent an entire youth being told that. And here I am. Yeah. Um, look, you have a poster for Sin City and the best Star Wars behind you right let's, now. Let's not get into it. All I know is that uh, the booting a PC to me is just not the same without the beep. It hasn't been the same for a long I time. I don't miss the beep. Really? No. Oh. I, got, I, I got a booting PC question for you, though. It's not a, a, at all to do with this email. Do you replace the the boot image on your BIOS? No, we've talked about this before. I think oh, that is, I'm shocked that because that sounds like a very me thing to do and not a very you thing to do. And yet you do it. And I don't. I have one of the, somebody I have art that somebody made of me that's, and it boots I mean, my face every okay, time. That <laughs> makes me happy. If you've got that, you might as well put it to use, I guess. Yeah. I mean, is, is, I assume it's the low resolution, like low color, whatever format can be displayed at that point in the boot it's process. It's like 800 by 600 now. Oh, huh. Yeah, it's pretty good. It looks okay. I'll take a picture. Are you talking about like, like that goes in place of like the award BIOS logo or whatever? American well, so Megatrends. I have the graphic BIOS up on my computer. Okay. okay. So that's instead different. of the SUS logo or Gigabyte or whoever it is, it pops up with, with my face smiling. Yeah, this just speaks to our boot preferences then, because I also turn off the full screen, like the splash screen, the high res splash screen. That also seems wrong to me. I want the, oh. I want the text mode post and I want, no, I wanted to go, I wanted to go straight from my smiling face with this dots to windows logo with the dots. It, it feels like cheating to have a high resolution image uh, before you get into an operating system. Yeah, get in uh, there, man. 
Anyway, what's, what's Jerry's email about? I said, sorry, I, I'm just close the loop here. I don't think I'm going to order one of those crappy Amazon speakers. I think instead, next time I am home where my parents have probably three old PC cases in the basement. Gonna, you're going to steal. I'm going to harvest. You're going to harvest. Oh, I'm man. Gonna harvest. I'm going to harvest one of the good case speakers out of one of those old cases. That's a choice. Uh, anyway, electronics okay. recycling. That's what you're doing. That's right. Just yeah. putting old stuff to use. Just yeah. like that lathe. Yeah. Old lathe is old PC speakers. It's all the same. All right. Uh, last email from Jerry. I work for a large aerospace company and made an offhand comment years ago to my manager that our HR director lady seemed a bit cold or harsh sometimes. My manager, uh, my manager told me that previously she was the HR person for Gateway during their decline and had personally laid off thousands of workers. Holy shit. It opened my eyes a bit to think through the toll that could take on a person, although I'm hard pressed to decide how my opinion of her changed. Uh, a mix of respect, compassion, and above all, an absolute fear of getting on her wrong side. Wow, that's intense. That is a lot. Did you? It's like you were you were just the hatchet person at that point, right? Like you were being forced to. You're the guillotine operator. Did did did, um, did you guys go through layoffs at no. in like two, early two thousands media layoffs? No. So I, I I got I guess I got really lucky. I was like sandwiched kind of right between rounds of layoffs. Like there were. When I started at GameSpot, there had been like a pretty big round of layoffs like six months prior, uh -huh. which I which I think. So I started in 2003 and this would have been I think mid 02 is when the last layoffs happened. So that would have been probably the end of the dot com bursting, right? The, the bubble yeah. bursting. So I started. There, there were not more layoffs for the five years that I was there until I after I left. So I started at Maximum PC in 2000, in the middle of 2000. And we had layoffs in February of 2001 when the dot com bubble burst like like we shut, they shut seven magazines on one day, which was a wow. Yeah. I mean, it was all, they they launched seven magazines in 2000 and they shut them all down in February of 2001. It was Boy, not really, they were really in it for the long haul, huh? Look, <laughs> this is why media companies should not be publicly traded. Um, the, after that we had, I think seven rounds of layoffs through the total through 2001, 2002 <sighs> to a, the point that it was just like, it got normal. That's, I was going to say that's a pretty harsh and also steady cadence at some point. It was, it was horrific. Um, it like it ended with the guy who was the layoff guy getting laid off on the last one. And that's when <laughs> everybody's like, well, maybe it's going to be okay now. And then there were still a few more over the next few years. Good Lord. Um, it, I, I can absolutely see how it would mess you up. I can't imagine like I've, I've been lucky enough that even though I've managed people for a long time, I've only had to fire a couple of people and it's not, like it is, it, I still think about it and I'm not happy. It's not like, don't fucking cry for me, Irene. You know, like I was the person removing someone's livelihood. Right. Like, and usually it wasn't without cause. Um, but I can't imagine having to lay off thousands of people. That would be horrific. Um, yeah. so yeah, this is kind of a bummer, Brad. Yeah. Sorry. Maybe I shouldn't put this one right at the end, but, uh, you know, well, here's to, here's to steady employment. Yeah, steady employment. Well, wait. Um, you know what? You know what we should toast though. What's that? The wonderful patrons who make the tech pod possible. Absolutely. This is, uh, in case you don't know, this is a listener-supported podcast. We have more than twenty-three hundred wonderful people right now who support the show and support uh, the tech pod every single week. Uh, and as always, we wouldn't be here without them. So uh, thanks to everybody. Uh, whether you're, uh, you know, no matter what level of the Patreon you're on, 
or if you're just telling your friends about the show when we talk about something interesting that you think that they'll enjoy, we we definitely appreciate it. And yes, thank, thank you so much. You you make this all possible. I know that sounds trite, but it is 100 percent true. I mean, is, we don't can, we, yeah, take we don't take ads. Yeah, we're not taking yeah. ads. So uh, we're over twenty four hundred now, actually. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, we, we owe a we owe a scene drama podcast. Yes, also, I was, was going to bring up scene drama. I hope I have this right. I think are we looking to get a guest for that? Is that? case we should talk about it offline okay we, we, should, we should come up with a plan okay i don't i don't have a good vision of what this episode is i we, Dude, we kind of threw that out as a joke and now it's is, a thing that got real so there is such an it's it's more than real at this point there is such an embarrassment of riches in the scene drama category lately look there's almost, always scene drama brad it where there's a feels, scene it almost feels like this is like a mini series waiting to happen at this point or something like this, this free node stuff over the last week or two is like oh really practically a whole episode unto itself have you not seen this no, I'm okay. We should not. We should not get too deep so, into it. When we pitched, when we were talking about scene drama before, I th- or you, th- I can't remember which of us. One of us threw it out on the podcast as like the 2000 Patreon goal was like I was like we should just do a spinoff series. It's nothing but scene drama, where it's like six episodes or something like that. And I, yeah. I feel like that's probably possible. Yeah, like um, when you said that, my first thought was my worry. It was like, oh, there's surely there's not enough material to keep that going. But I think at this point there is more. There's too much. Material. I feel like we were thinking about the Mister stuff with like the Ram at that point, but I yes. can't remember. God, I forgot about that one. That one, even that one, is on the list. Like that's yeah. number eight or something. There's so many of them now. There's a lot of scene drama. Anywhere there's a scene, there's drama. So that's it's for coming. Sure. Um, and and the the nerd I've I've learned the nerdy scene drama is just as messy as every other kind of drama. <laughs> oh yeah, it's I, I yeah. Anyway, I, I worry about the psychic toll of making a series that's just yeah. about scene drama. But yeah. anyway, um, that's coming. We're doing we're going to do it. Yes, we're uh, getting I, there. Think, I think we're going to do it. I, I want to do another book club. I think that was fun. So we'll do yeah. that for the patrons and we'll let them decide what book we do. Um, I, I mean, we're, we're going to we're going to give you a list of stuff to vote on. Don't you? I mean, you can suggest stuff, but anyway, um, thanks as always to our executive producer tier patrons, Andrew Slosky, Jacob Chapel, James Kamek, the bunny fiend and twinkle twinkie. Yeah. Thank you so much. And as it's the end of the month, thank you also to our associate producer level patrons, Alejandro Navarro, Andre, Andre Burke, Arthur Geese, Ben Golmi, Brad Van Orman, Brian Rabe, Dan Brockman, Dave Ulian, Donato Sinico, the third Graham Banks, Jacob Wilson, Jad Rita, Jason Neeland, Jorge Pereira, uh, Josh Klein, Julian, Louis Sankowski, Matt Walker, Sanchit Kumar, Terry Cox, and Thomas Shea. Thank you all so much. We have a lot of new, a lot of new faces in here oh, this yeah, month. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, I, I think we said it last week, but you know, welcome to the community and thank you to everybody who has already been here for a while for making it such a welcoming place yeah, for, it's, it's, for, for new people to join. It's been really fun. I think we need to, I want to expand some channels because we, we already, we added, we added some secret channels. Yes. We talked about this last week. Yes, I can't we, remember. I think, I think we did. I okay. think we, yes, we, yes, we talked about the crypto channel. There's secret channels. We don't talk about what they are, what they talk about, but they got some of the noise out of the main channel. The cri- and the if crypto- we feel like we need to move some of the noise out of the main channel, then we can. So is that a, is that a recursive channel? The, our, our crypto channel is itself crypto. It's not really encrypted. I mean, I guess it is well, kind of discords encrypted, right? But kind of, yeah, anyway. It's- uh, thank you all. And if you want to support the podcast and join the fabulous discord community and the tech pod community, you should join now. Cause we're going to change the patron tiers very, very soon. Yeah. Um, 
you can get in for two bucks a month, which gives you access to the discord. And for five, you get the patron exclusive episodes of which we have one coming very, very soon because it's the end of the month. Yep. And uh, we will be back next week with more tech pod. Uh, if you are listening to this, you probably already figured out the Apple podcast stuff. Oh, if, gosh. If I you forget. don't know about yes. it, I'm so sorry, but there's fuck all we can do to fix it. Apple has jacked this up at an incredible level. And I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of astonishing to me. I, I mean, for, for people who don't use iTunes or Apple podcasts or just don't know what we're talking about, our show is essentially no longer exists on the Apple services, which is the only one that matters for all intents and purposes for, for about a week running now. Right. Roughly. I, mean, I don't know when it started, but last week's episode did not show up for Apple podcast yes. users unless yes. if you want to get back on Apple podcasts and don't want to download it manually, you can add the, the RSS feed from techpod.content.town manually. Um, but yeah. Uh, I'm incredibly I, I'm sending a support ticket every single day. I haven't had one response yet. Assholes. Uh, someday they'll get the message. Uh, anyway, patreon.com slash tech Thank you all so much for your yes. support. We will be back next week with more. See you. Have a good week, Brad. You too. Bye. Bye.